0: So James chapter 1, just by way of reintroduction, we'll remember that James is written to Jewish believers, um, that it's a very early book, that it was written very early uh, in the uh, infancy of the church. And as James writes through this, there's a real... uh, Uh, cohesiveness, really, through the entire book, Uh, this idea that our faith is exhibited by the lives that we lead um, as the abundance of our heart is changed, and so we want to continue with that this morning, uh, as we looked at uh, initially, uh, diving into the first chapter, the testing of our faith and the joy that comes with those trials, knowing that God is, in fact, faithful. And that idea continues through, uh, and it continues through uh, with a response that you and I as believers would hold. And so that's what we want to discuss this morning. Um, as we look at uh, <clears throat> the idea of a simple, single-minded trust in the Lord. So um, jump with me. We we, we kind of jumped around a little bit, and as we talked about, the book of James is sort of written a little bit like Proverbs, and there are segments, and there, there is a cohesive thread throughout the whole thing, and so we approached it a little bit differently, and so we're going to jump around a little bit in the chapter again this morning, uh, but let's let's get into uh verse 5 let's begin there it says if any of you lack wisdom let him ask of god that gives to all men liberally and upbraids or doesn't scold or rebuke and it shall be given him but let him ask in faith nothing wavering for he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed for let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the lord a double minded man is unstable in all his ways So we have this single-minded trust that's being discussed, and and that's the the idea here. If we lack wisdom, it's directly in the context of God's faithfulness to bring about the redeeming of these temptations, these trials that we find ourselves in, that He's working all things, as we read in Romans 8, 28 and 29, for our best, for our good, uh, as we are called according to His purpose. And so as As we look at this, that's the direct context that we can trust God to bring about, even those trials, the effects of sin in the world around us for our best. Now, by application, we can apply that to anything. God who has infinite wisdom and understanding of His creation can be sought out for wisdom for the application of truth of His principles in any circumstance. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles for just a moment. In 2 Chronicles, we find King Solomon uh, as a young man coming to to the throne. And in the midst of that, uh, you'll remember the story that God tells Solomon to ask him for whatever he would want. And in the middle of all of that Solomon could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for power. He could have asked for prestige and, and all kinds of things, but he doesn't ask for any of that. What Solomon asked for is wisdom. And we pick it up in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. He says, Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established, for thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that it may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this like people that is so great? Solomon's request is for wisdom, is for understanding, that he might govern well, that he might rule in a way that is honoring to the Lord, that he might not be heavy-handed. And in response to that, God not only grants him wisdom, wisdom above, far above any other person, insomuch that when the, the Queen of Sheba comes and sees all these things, she hears of the wisdom of Solomon and comes to observe it and see what's happening there. She readily recognizes it. And not only does she recognize that, but she recognizes the blessing of God that he tells him, listen, Solomon, you didn't ask for wealth. You didn't ask for uh, renown or any of those things. You asked for something that was good and right and appropriate. And in response to that heart, God says, I'm going to give you wealth. And I'm going to give you prestige and fame. And, and that's observed and seen. Here is God being faithful to, able, to, to Solomon as he requests wisdom. It tells us in James, though, that we do so, that as we request wisdom, we do so without wavering. That we do so with the, without making, and the word wavering means to make a distinction. In other words, there are those things that God would dwell in and that he would give wisdom about, and those things that he perhaps wouldn't or that he would leave us to figure out for ourselves. I can trust God here, but I can't trust God there. And whenever we make that distinction, that's an artificial distinction. That isn't something that is true. We can trust God in every circumstance, in every trial, in every temptation, in every hardship, in every good and about. uh, Abundant time that we may ever experience. There's no distinction to be made. So without wavering, we ask without wavering, those who would ask with wavering, with this distinction, making this something that God could handle and something that He he doesn't, it, it attacks the nature and the characteristics of who God is. And it establishes our faith and our our trust in something other than the universe and we're driven about like a sea like the waves in the sea by the wind, pushed over here and pushed over there as we, as we seek to navigate life with this miscomprehension that this is something God would be faithful in and this is something that I need to figure out on my own operating in our own strength and in our own understanding in Proverbs chapter three. Uh, verses five through seven we read trust in the lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding so our first inclination is to lean to our own understanding base what we choose or how we operate upon the experience that we've held the experience of life but as we look in james as we looked a couple of weeks ago what do we find that uh, that The patience, the trials that we endure, that we experience, bring about patience. And as we jump into the book of Romans, we find that that patience brings about experience. But it isn't isn't a worldly experience that we trust in. And it's an experience that God is, in fact, trustworthy. And that experience, it says, doesn't leave us ashamed. It sows hope. So we don't trust in our own, we don't lean to our own understanding. Now, that isn't to say that we we don't learn and that we don't come to an understanding of the biblical principles that God has given us. That's not leaning to our own understanding. That's leaning to the understanding that God has imparted in His Word and by His Spirit has instructed us in. He continues... Be not wise in, thine, excuse me, in all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. We're going to submit ourselves to the paths that God has put before us. And he says, Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord, and depart from evil. And that's a very consistent theme that we encounter all through the book of James. That we wouldn't be double-minded. That we wouldn't be part of our heart over here and part of our heart over here. But we would be established in trust. As we look in verse 8, he says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. It's an interesting word in in the Greek. It's the word di-psychos, two-minded. And it means to vacillate or to go back and forth. We don't decide, and I'm going to make a statement, we don't decide what is from the Lord and what isn't from the Lord. Um, God is, in fact, sovereign. And whether he's allowed something or whether it's the effects of sin that he is redeeming on our behalf, we have the, the, the ability and the hope and the joy of trusting in what God has allowed or what he has sent our way for our best. Turns me to Isaiah chapter 29. Now, uh, the book of Isaiah is largely written to the nation of Israel. And the reason that it's written is because it's because of their vacillation, because of their two heartedness. They go through the motions we find in the first chapter of the book. They go through the motions of worship and of seeking the Lord, but their heart is far from the Lord. And as we get into Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, it says, Wherefore, the Lord says, for as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. So they say the right things, and they might even do some of the right things, but they're not doing it with a heart that is sincere, with a heart that they're vacillating. I want to be acceptable before God. I want to be known as somebody who is one of his people, one foot on this side of the fence. Yet I want to live my own way for my own desires, one foot on this side of the fence. In Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus says, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so Jesus is making a specific application here, but the idea is this, that we can't serve God and we can't serve ourselves. We have to wholeheartedly choose to serve the Lord. Jesus would say to take up our cross daily and to follow him. Paul would beseech us, by the mercies of God in Romans 12.1, that we lay down our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is our reasonable service. That we would commit ourselves wholly and fully to the service of our Creator, of our Lord and Savior. And as we look through the book of James, this is a consistent theme. That the way that we live, that the way that we conduct ourselves confirms the profession of our faith. Galatians chapter 5, Galatians 5, verses 7 through 10. Paul is addressing this church that has fallen in some respects away from their faith in the Lord and slipped back into legalism back into bondage to the law. And he's addressing that throughout the book of Galatians. But here he says, you did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion comes not of him that calls you. And then he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded. but he that troubles you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. In other words, Paul says, listen, there is something there, somebody that has caused you to slip. Some false teaching has encroached into your congregation, into your church, and into your understanding, and somehow you fall and prey to it. You started well, you started in faith, you started in trust of the Lord and all that he was doing in and through and around you. And you've slipped and you've made it some legalistic works, maintenance of the salvation that we have freely received. And he makes the statement that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, leaven, uh, I mean, if you, if you bake, if you know that's, I mean, that would be the yeast or something in there. And you can't separate just a little tiny bit of that leavening of that yeast within that bread or that baking soda or that baking powder, whatever leavening agent we're using leavens the entire dough. That little bit of legalism that has crept in that little bit of of works mentality, that little bit of of not trusting the Lord, that I can't trust him over here, but I can trust him over here, corrupts our entire understanding of who he is and how faithful he is. And we have to correct our thinking. And here's the good news. The same is true the other way around. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. When I begin to choose, I can trust the Lord in everything, and I make that conscious decision. That begins to affect my thinking about everything I held over here, where I previously thought I can't trust the Lord. It's repairable. A little leaven leavens a whole lump, works both ways. So as we begin to operate in faith and Lord, I consciously take this part of my life that I withheld from you because I didn't feel like I could trust you in it. And I firmly and consciously, I actively choose to put it here and to trust you in it. Well, we were in Wyoming, we were talking to uh, some friends uh, of Ty and Chloe's and uh, I don't think that Jeff would probably mind me sharing this story, uh, but he, as a young man, was, he was very committed to uh, honor the Lord in giving, and he was driving to church, and at that point in his life, he was, I don't remember how much he said, but something like $200 a month, that was his, that was what he was living on, and so he's got to drive to church, and he's, he's got his, his $20, the Lord's $20 in his pocket to, to give a church, that was what he's going to do. And he's almost out of gas. And he knows that I can get to church, but I will not make it home. And he had at that moment the choice. I can choose to trust God who has always been faithful, who has saved me, who has led me to this church, who has led me to operate in faith in regard to my giving and my tithe, who has led me to operate in faith of him in every aspect of my life. And he sits in the pews, and as the the collection plate goes past, he talks about this back and forth in his mind, this this vacillation. But he makes the choice as the plate comes past, Lord, this is yours, and I trust you. And he puts it in there. And he goes on and he tells a story. and, And at the end of the service, as they're all shaking hands and they're saying their goodbyes, you know, somebody does the old cash in the hand, handshake, you know, and he just slips it in his pocket because that's what you do. You don't make a big deal about it. You slip it in your pocket. And so he, he's assuming, you know, it's five bucks or whatever it might be. He, he doesn't know, but he pulls it out later and it's a hundred dollar bill. It's a hundred dollar bill. Here's God who is faithful, more than faithful to provide every, I mean, it's 50% of your monthly budget. He, t- he, when I told the story, he says that the rest of the story is that there's like 10 people in this church. <laughs> and he says, and so after he's gotten married and he and his wife, or, uh, they end up in the mission field. I don't remember when they'd come back, but they met with this church again. and They didn't have potlucks and things because there's just 10 people. They just go to the restaurant and they all sit around and that's what they were doing. And he, he was sharing this story and how it was so encouraged them to continue forward how they could trust the Lord in every aspect of their life, so much so that all the times that God had called them to the mission field and God had called them, and there's just not enough time to get all your support together and all those kinds of things, like the mission organizations always tell you you have to do. In fact, as they were getting ready to go to Frontier to serve there in the capacity that they're serving there, they're sending church, there's only three months. And they said, ah, there's, there's just not enough time. We've never seen, and their church sends a lot of missionaries. They they, they do a lot of this. We've just never seen anybody in three months. And Jeff says, we've seen it more than once. Three times in in their trust in the Lord, God has provided everything necessary without solicitation, without going out and asking churches, without, without all those things. By walking in faith and trusting the Lord, He has provided for them in miraculous timeframes everything that they've ever needed in regard to the calling that He's put in their life. And God used that simple instance where I'm just going to you know, take some of the gas money, some of the Lord's money for gas, and then, no, I'm going to trust Him. And He was faithful and, and over and over and over. And the same thing is true of you and I, whether it's something that it's uh, monetary, whether it's something uh, that we just don't know how to deal with it. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the understanding. I don't have the, the concept or the principles of truth that I need to have to properly address that. Lord, give me wisdom. Give me the trust, the faith that I need in you to see me through this particular circumstance the grace that I need to stand underneath it. It's a simple faith. It's not a faith that, that might even ever be articulated, but it's a simple trust that God is in fact faithful. In Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah chapter 55, because God is obviously not finished with his people Israel. And even though there is some correction and some faithfulness of God to bring them back to himself through all of the things that we read about in Isaiah, the prophesied hardships that they're going to experience, the corrections at his loving hand. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 6. He says, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I want to just pause there for a moment. We took time and we studied through on a Thursday night, a couple of Thursday nights, repentance. And that is a description of repentance. That we seek the Lord, that we forsake our turn from it, and we turn to trust and obedience to, to our God. And what does it say? That He is faithful. He will have mercy upon Him. He will abundantly pardon. It's the same principle that we find in the New Testament, right? That if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God is telling the nation of Israel, and he's confirming to you and I, that listen, when we have these areas where I'm not trusting over here, when we pull that back and we give that to the Lord and we say, I consciously am going to trust you in this. He is faithful to forgive us that. He is faithful to increase our faith. He continues on. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my way, your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not thither, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing. Whither to I sent it, but here it is. God says, Listen, my word will accomplish that which it is sent to do to give us understanding, to give us wisdom. As the spirit leads us in truth and understanding of the word of God, He leads us to a place where we, as we come to it, we see His faithfulness, we see it expressed. Wherefore, because we are compassed by so great a cloud of witnesses, Hebrews chapter 12, let us lay aside every weight and every sin that has so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. With patience, with enduring trust, with confidence that God is who He is, and that He is for us and not against us. Simple Trust. I don't know if you've noticed, but a couple of times I've stated it this way, that I consciously take this and move it to this. That I take those things that I withhold, that I don't trust the Lord in, and I consciously put them over here in the category of this is something I can trust God in. Our faith needs to be a conscious act. It's something that we accomplish in that sense. It isn't an emotional ascent in that I have to feel that this is something that God can be trusted in. That's leaning to my own understanding. He is trustworthy whether we feel that he is or not. And he has proven that time and time again throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, throughout your life and throughout my life, throughout the life of countless believers around the world. It's a simple trust. And the simple trust that we have is not only found... it's predicated it's built upon the fact that god is unchanging jump with me down to verse 17 james chapter 1 verse 17 here he is james is discussing all these good gifts and he says listen uh, just to preface that we talked about it a couple weeks ago he says listen don't let you don't let anyone say that when they're tempted to evil that they're tempted to sin that they're tempted by god because he doesn't tempt anyone and nor is he tempted And he says in verse 16, Do not err, my beloved brethren. Then he gives this clarifying statement. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. There is no variableness, nor shadow of turning. It, It isn't that God was trustworthy in the Old Testament. And so we could see Abraham and Noah and Abel and all of these people that are, that, that are given to us as examples of faith, trusting in him, but somehow he's not trustworthy today. No, he's unvariable. He doesn't change. Turns me to Hebrews chapter one for just a moment. Hebrews chapter one. Scripture makes this very plain that God is uh, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall all wax old as does a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. In other words, God doesn't perish. He doesn't change. He doesn't somehow decay and become less than He was or somehow grow and become more than He was. He was God from the very beginning. In the beginning, God, the Creator, the self-existent One, the I Am, all-powerful, all-knowing, unchanging, existed. And His creation, while it may change, while it may be subject to the corruption of sin, while it may be reserved in here for future discard in the fire, so that it may be remade complete and whole and without the effects of sin, He does not change. Nor has He been corrupted by sin, nor has He been done anything that would change His nature. just as he was trustworthy in the very beginning, he is trustworthy today. Hebrews chapter 13, for just a moment, in verse 8, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, who was in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. John 14, excuse me, John chapter 1, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. There's no, uncha- there's no change in God. There's no circumstance that has been given to us in such a way that we would lack anything in Him. He said, I'd never leave you nor forsake you. I won't leave you without some foundation upon which you can build. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as we talk about trials, as we talk about hardships, those things that we are going to endure, and our response to that, in trust, in faith of who God is, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, there has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. The unchanging, the invariable creator of the universe is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. You may be able to bear it, that we might stand under it, that we might endure whatever trial it may be, reaping the fruit of patience and the patience leading to experience and experience hope. God didn't change. Noah, when he faced the uncertainty of rain and the total destruction of all mankind, save those who were on the ark, for 120 years constructed this vessel that I'm sure nobody expected or fathomed the ramifications of what was about to happen. Yet he continued in it by the grace extended to him to bear under the trial. And in the same way, when we are faced with whatever trial, with whatever hardship, with whatever we may encounter, God is faithful. God extends the same grace to you and I so that we may bear under it, that we might endure, that we might stand firm, steadfast in our trust of our God. He is unchanging. As we continue on in James chapter 1, it says in verse 18, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And I just want to touch upon the word of truth here. This is the gospel. This is what, what is begat us. This is how God brought to you and I the truths of our sinfulness, the truths of God's faithfulness to his word to redeem all mankind from the effects and the consequences of sin to send his son Jesus Christ as that substitutionary death who would die according to the scriptures who would be buried and would rise again three days later according to the Scriptures. this is the gospel this is the simple truth that is being discussed here and this is the foundation how did we determined that we could trust God for our salvation but we couldn't trust him for whatever circumstance I might find myself in this life if he's trustworthy of our eternity wouldn't he be trustworthy of how we're going to get gas in the car or whatever other finite things we encounter in this life in Luke chapter 16 Luke chapter 16, verses 27 through 31. Luke 16, 27. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into the place of torment. Now this is, you remember, this is a parable that Jesus taught. This is Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man, Lazarus sat at his table begging for scraps. The rich man and Lazarus both die. And the rich man, he goes to Hades, he goes to hell. And Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, this place of paradise, this temporarily holding place till the finished work of Jesus Christ. And there he is, the rich man who had had everything in life, now in torment, agonizing. In fact, so much so that he says, "Listen, Father Abraham, just let the poor, just let Lazarus dip his finger in the water and give me just one drip." The torment and the agony, the reality of hell. And when he's told, "Well, we we can't do that. We, that's against the rules. Effectively, it's an impossibility." As we would read in the book of Hebrews, it's appointed unto man to die once, and then the judgment. The rich man begins to beg Abraham, he says, listen, send somebody. I have these five brothers. Send somebody to to them that they might hear, and that they would turn from their ways, and they would turn to truth. That's what's being said. In other words, send a sign, send a miracle, send some fantastic thing that would confirm to them that they need to hear, that they need to listen, they need to pay attention, they need to change their ways. And the response is this. Abraham said it to him in verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, "For they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rose from the dead." God has given everything necessary in the word of truth, the, the promise of redemption from Genesis all the way through revelation, the promise of the redeemer, of God himself taking care of everything necessary. In John chapter one, verse 13. John 1.13, speaking of those who would receive him and whoever would receive him to them gave he be the power to become the sons of God, which were not born, excuse me, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In James it says that he, that God himself begat us by the word of truth. That he would providentially send those messengers into our lives that would sow the seed of truth, that we might hear it, that we might respond to it in faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, but God who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. He didn't require us to clean ourselves up, but He cleaned us by the washing of the water of the word. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13 for just a moment. Acts chapter 13, verses 42 to 44. Paul here stands and he speaks And Verse 42 And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue The Gentiles Besought that these words might be preached to them The next Sabbath And when the congregation was broken up Many of the Jews and the religious proselytes or converts, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the Word of God. They didn't come to see signs and miracles. They came to hear truth. They came to hear those who would give them the Word of God. And that's what has converted us the simple truths that God has sent his son that we might be forgiven. Now, there's a response to the salvation that we receive. And if we look in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, he begins to dive into that. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak slow to wrath. For the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluidity or excess of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Be slow, swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. There is is the idea that you and I as believers may wrongly expect unbelievers to act and to behave the same way that we do. And that we might condemn those who wouldn't operate in the same trust and faith of the Word of God that we do. And that's an unfair thing for us. They don't know truth. They don't understand it. It makes no sense to them. To them who perish. The preaching of the cross is foolishness. But that doesn't mean that we remain silent. It means that we lead them in truth. It means that we share simple truth with them. Not condemning, slow to wrath. Because the wrath of man, it says, does not work the righteousness of God. Vengeance is his. He is the one who is executing ju- judgment. It isn't ours. Well, there's a lot more that may be said there, what I want to focus on this morning for just a moment is this idea of wherefore, in verse 21. In response, because of what we have received and because of the, the truth of every good and perfect gift being received from God, wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. We put those things aside. We put off and we put on. And all throughout the New Testament, we encounter that principle. Paul writes about it extensively, putting off and putting on. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 2. Timothy chapter 2. Now, Timothy obviously is it's one of the pastoral uh, epistles. And it's written uh, to a pastor, to Timothy, by Paul, his son in the faith. But there is definitely an application for you and I here. <clears throat> 2nd Timothy chapter 2 verses 24 and 25. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all, apt to teach, patience, patient in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance, the acknowledging of the truth. So here he is. These are qualifications, specifically those things that Uh, that should apply and be characteristic in a in your eldership in your in your pastors but there's an application here there's something that is to be derived from this for all believers that we would be those who would not strive but would be gentle slow to speak and slow to wrath quick to hear Those who would impart and sow the truth in the lives of those so that peradventure, they might come to repentance and the acknowledging of that word of truth, the gospel. The same characteristics should be throughout the church. Men, women, children. Not just within our pastors. This is a characteristic. These are things that we should look for and pray that God would establish in us. In Romans chapter 12, if you'll turn there with me for a moment, Romans 12, verses 19 through 21, Paul begins, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath. I remember that, We're to be slow to wrath because the wrath of man doesn't work the righteousness of God. While we may stand there, while we may take up righteous offense, so to speak, on behalf of seeing sin rampant in our culture, in our society, all around us, in in the lives of those that we are concerned and that we love. It isn't our place to condemn. It isn't our place to judge. That is God's place. So we're going to give... Place to that, we're going to let him do it for it is written, it says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, because we're going to operate in trust and faith that God is in fact the judge and not you and me, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, if he thirsts, give him drink, for in so doing, thou shalt heap fires of coal upon his head. Be not overcome of evil but overcome evil with good. You see the consistency in the theme that James is all about, right? That the faith that was within us would come out in the way that we would live. That I wouldn't condemn, that I wouldn't execute my own justice, my own vengeance, which is not justice, excuse me, my own vengeance on those that are around me. But that I would trust in the Lord and that I would take the message of hope to those around me and that in honor of God I would serve them so much so that the evil in their life could be overcome by the good the fruit witnessed in my life kind of sounds like Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus talks about listen let them see your light let them see your good works that they might glorify your father which is in heaven last in Ephesians I say last, but I don't mean done. Ephesians chapter 5. Far from done. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, this is obviously one of the uh, seminal marriage passages, Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25. But I I don't want you to miss this because Paul says, listen, I, I write you about the mystery of the church. And he's using marriage as that illustration of the church, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Our response to salvation is a growing in sanctification, is a growing into the likeness of Christ. To consciously choose to operate in faith to consciously choose to operate as a result of that faith in love to those who are around us whether they be enemy whether they be friends whatever the circumstance may be how whatever that looks like wherefore what is my response to the salvation that i have received wherefore he says lay apart all filthiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word. When we talk about engrafting, it simply means to implant. That's what the word means in the Greek. And we, it's the same idea as grafting plants. Right? You can buy a plant, and it'll have oranges and lemons and limes. It'll bear all different kinds of fruit on the single tree because they've grafted into the rootstock, Different fruits. You don't have to excuse me because I'm not an expert in grafting and how all of that works. Right? But here's the rootstock, and it's hardy. And it's what's providing the life and all those things to the branches so that they may bear fruit, which is somewhat reminiscent of John chapter 15, where Jesus says, Listen, I am the vine or the rootstock, and you are the branches. And I'm going to deal with you such that you will bring forth fruit. In other words, as the word of God comes into you and I, as it engrafts into us, as it becomes implanted, it becomes the abundance of our heart, and therefore the foundation upon which our life is built. The wisdom by which we operate, we bear fruit as a result. And then he dives into the next few verses, talking about being doers of the word and not hearers only. As Paul would say, letting the word dwell in us richly, letting it have its way in us that it might change and mold us. Just like we read in Ephesians chapter 5, washing and renewed by the word so that we might be spotless and blameless. Being a doer of the word and not a hearer only That should be familiar to you and I who have studied through obedience, right? Because in Hebrew thought, the idea is obedience. They don't really have a word for obey. What it means is hear and do. That's the concept. That's the principle. Here is the word of God. Be you a hearer of the word and a doer. In other words, obey the word. turns me to Romans chapter three because I want to make it clarification first off that this isn't simply uh, a, an act or a means of obtaining righteousness our obedience is not a, a means of obtaining righteousness and as we consider the audience that these these are roman excuse me jewish believers uh <clears throat> been brought up with the understanding that these are the rites and the rituals the sacrifices and the, the celebrations that we keep to be acceptable before the Lord. All of that being an example and a foreshadowing of what is coming, what is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. We're not going to be justified. We're not going to be declared righteous by our strict adherence to the word of God. There are those who are in the church today who fill pews, who read their Bibles, who give tithes, who soothe their conscience on a very regular basis. But when they approach Christ on the day of judgment, he'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I know you not. Right? We have all kinds of political acronyms and one of them is rhinos, right? You're a Republican in name only. There's Christians in name only. Those who name the name of Christ, but they're not his. And this is, the same, this is kind of the theme of James. That we would sit here and soothe our conscience, that we would go through and establish these rags of righteousness that God is not accepting of, just as the nation of Israel in many respects sought to obtain their righteousness when all along it was by faith just like Abraham whose faith was counted was imputed to him as righteousness Galatians chapter 3 again a a book written and addressing this idea of legalism and maintaining or earning righteousness through the the operation uh, of things that we would do in our lives Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster, our tutor, that which would instruct us to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith, not by our works. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Now, that doesn't mean that the law has gone away, it doesn't mean that it isn't applicable. It's a codification of what God has declared to be right and what He's declared to be wrong, and that still exists and it is still true for you and I as believers. But what it is an end of is keeping the law as a means of righteousness, to obtain righteousness or to be acceptable before God. That's gone. And as Paul is addressing the Galatians and he says... It begins earlier in the book, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, who has deluded you or tricked you into believing this falsehood, that you have to do these things to merit favor with God. Whether it's circumcision, whether it's uh, keeping a particular Sabbath, whatever it may be. That's not how we obtain righteousness. It's through faith and in Jesus Christ alone. So we're not talking about, as we look at, as we look at works, as we look at the, the fruit of our faith exhibited to the world around us, we're not talking about obtaining or earning righteousness. But what we are talking about is obedience, that engrafting of the Word of God, letting it come into our lives, letting it bear fruit and change the way that we think and that we understand the world around us. We talk about being sober-minded in the sense that that is seeing things and thinking about things the way Christ would think about them. And that's what the Word of God does for us. It informs the way that we would think about the world around us. We don't fall prey to the deception of righteous rags. Hearing alone isn't obedience. Hearing it alone isn't obedience. Look with me in verse 20, 23 uh, through 26. For if anybody be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholds himself and goes his way, and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But right here we are, we have the mirror of the word that exposes who we are, what's inside of us. And we look into that mirror, we look into the true, and we see our natural face. We see our natural inclination. Just as the law, the Word of God is our schoolmaster, that which would instruct us of our need for Christ. It would reveal within us our our, our depravity and our inability to be favorable before God. And I choose at that moment to take that truth and to suppress it. Just like we read about in Romans chapter 2. Excuse me, chapter 1, verse 18. Those who have the truth and they suppress it in unrighteousness, they hold it in unrighteousness. Because I don't want to acknowledge that, just as we read about John, uh, excuse me, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. They don't want their deeds to be exposed as evil. This is condemnation that light is coming to the, and, and men choose darkness rather than light. John 3 19. That's the idea. We're not falling prey, and we're not going to be deceived by that. He beholds himself, and he goes his way, and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. He puts it as far from his mind as he possibly can. And this is a more, I'm going to say it's more and more common today. That probably isn't 100% accurate. But it's more and more acceptable today. Because this culture, as society at large, has slid further and further away from the truths of God's word as they become more and more illiterate of what God has said and far more accepting of the sins that God has clearly called sin. And we read about those that would say, listen, let's call good what God has called sin and call sin what God has called good as that is more and more acceptable today it's more and more acceptable to put away the knowledge and the understanding of what i've just seen in the word of truth or what is exposed in me but he's like that natural man who puts it aside shoves it down as far as he can so he doesn't have to deal with it matthew chapter 22 Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 40. Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And one of these lawyers asks them the question, tempting him, trying to catch him in his words. He says, Master, what is the great commandment in the law? What What is the most important thing that we would do? And Jesus takes this and he answers it. In verse 37 of Matthew chapter 22, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second, he says, Jesus continues, he gives them a bonus answer. He says, The second is like to it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus is saying that the entirety of Scripture hangs on these two simple truths, that we love God first and foremost with everything in us, with all that we are, and that we love people, that we would love our neighbor. And elsewhere, as Jesus is giving the parable of the Good Samaritan, he very quickly clarifies who our neighbor is. And it's simply whoever we would encounter. Every man, woman, and child that we ever come in contact with would be our neighbor. And even greater than that, because we live in such a small world today with the advent of technology and all those kinds of things, when we see those, in fact, we find this principle in Scripture, right, that we pray for those who are being persecuted as though we are persecuted with them. They are our neighbors in Christ. So we love God and we love people, and those two simple principles are a summation of the entirety of Scripture. The law that so perfectly reveals what is in us reveals how we don't love God, how we reject Him, how we take the simple truths that He has given us and we put those as far from us as we could, and how we would live selfishly to the persecution of others around us. As Jesus gives in that parable of the good Samaritan, right, here's this man, Samaritan, hated by the Jews, and he falls among the thieves, and he's there beaten, robbed, and left for dead. And who should come by but a priest, right, the mediator between God and man to the nation of Israel. And what does he do? He passes by on the other side, ignoring the plight of this man. Why? Because he's a Samaritan. I would hate that person. And then we have a Sadducee, a, a judge who comes by, so, somebody from who, a leader in Israel, and he passes by on the other side. And then who would come by but this Samaritan, hated by the Jews, specifically chosen by Jesus in this parable, so that he may illustrate that it isn't who we are, but it is what is within us that comes out in our lives. It would be a confirmation of the faith that is in us just as James is teaching us. And that Samaritan takes this man, he binds his wounds, he picks him up, takes him to a place where he can rest and recover and pays all of his debt. So much so that he leaves extra money. He says, listen, if there's anything, I'll come by. If there's anything left, any debt, I'll pay it. Yet there are those who would behold themselves in the word of God, encounter that instruction, falling far short of any love for God. In fact, hating him and hating people as a result. And they would put that knowledge out of their understanding. I'm just going to suppress that truth, hold it down here, because I don't want to deal with it. If that is true, what does that mean for me as as a person? It means that Scripture is true, that just as it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including me. They don't want to deal with that. He continues on in verse 25, James chapter 1. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So this is somebody who has come to the understanding. He encounters himself in Scripture. Here it is. This is the truth. And it reveals in me a disdain and a hate for God and a disdain and a hate for mankind. And I'm going to respond to that. I see that even though God, even though I hated God, even though I was his enemy, while I was yet a sinner and opposed to him, Christ would die for me. And by faith, we accept that. And we come to the understanding that God has done everything necessary to save us that I look into the perfect law of liberty, that I look into the perfect law of deliverance from the bondage of sin and death. And I'm brought into the perfect law of the spirit of life in Christ by acceptance of that by faith. And as a result of that, just as we have the wherefore, lay apart filthiness, wherefore, we engage in that which is acceptable to God because of the abundance of our heart now being different. In fact, not only is the abundance of our heart being different, Scripture would tell us that we have a different heart. And what is here, while it may need to be re on a regular basis because we live in a fallen world, God has given us something new here. He's given us a zeal and a desire to live for Him. He's given us a a, a heart that would want to serve others, that would want to serve Him. Isn't it interesting when people are first saved, when you first accept Christ and you're liberated? I mean, you read through John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and he does a great job explaining that. Here it is, the weight and the burden as he gets to the cross and as he accepts Christ, it falls off, and he's liberated from that. And he's enthusiastic and he's excited. And that's the way new believers are. And what happens? We older believers, whoa, whoa, just, just temper yourself. Slower down there. You can't just rush in and start. You got to know something. And while we probably do need to know something, we shouldn't, we shouldn't squash that zeal. In fact, we should pray that, Lord, you would grant me the same zeal that I had when I was first saved, when I first accepted you, when the burden was first removed from me, and I saw and understood so clearly, Lord, that you would restore to me the joy of my salvation. And we would continue in it, that we would operate in that zeal and in that hope and in that vigor that we found with in Christ and within him alone. And he gives us a contrast in verse 26. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridled not his tongue, but but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. We use religion in a negative term, right? right? But, But all religion is, it's simply the living out of what we believe. We all do it. We as Christians do it, Uh, Mormons do it, Uh, Muslims do it. Everybody exercises their religion. Unbelievers do it. But here's the thing. There can be an inconsistency amongst believers, and this is what's addressed here and in the next chapter in James. This is what's addressed, the inconsistency of our practice and what we believe what we say we believe, that the profession of our faith being holy and completely within Jesus Christ, yet the life that I live isn't by the truths of scripture, isn't in submission to what he has expounded here uh, in James chapter one or in the rest of the word of God, but it's by my own wisdom, my own understanding. He says, I can tell you all about faith, but he says, can you show me your faith? If any among you seem to be religious, you seem to be spiritual, right? And there's a lot of spiritual people today. They have some kind of a spirituality. There's some acknowledgement, so to speak, of uh, things out here or or some inherent morality or or something like that. But it's simply in their own understanding and their own conception of those ideas. It isn't in anywhere founded upon the word of God. But if any of you seem to be religious, but you can't bridle your tongue, you can't Put it under subjection so that we might speak the words of life, the truth of the word of God, and not explode all over people in anger and wrath, which doesn't work the righteousness of God. We would deceive our own heart. This man's religion is vain. It's empty. It's not rooted in truth. And he goes on in verse 27, he says, pure religion undefiled before God and the father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And I think to myself, well, that's pretty good because there's only two things I have to do now. Check and check, right? This is not an exhaustive list. This is addressing the heart of the matter. Right? you think about here is the fatherless, the orphans and the widows. And we visit them in their affliction. In other words, they have, these are those in this culture, in this time, who have no means to recompense. They, they can't pay you back for anything you're about to do for them. Right? I am selflessly serving. That's the idea here. It isn't that there is an inherent virtue necessarily in widows and orphans. It's that without any thought of reward, without any thought, no pat on the back, no attaboy, no, no, repri- no repayment or anything. I'm going to choose to serve. Why? Because I'm doing this for the Lord and out of faith, out of trust in him, not for what I might get out of it. Their inability to unpay. And then he says, not only that, but to keep himself unspotted from the world. So that second thing, right? If We're going to limit it to a list of two things, to be selfless in our service to God, and to those around us, to love God and to love people completely wholeheartedly without reservation. And then, secondly, to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. In other words, we're not corrupted; we're not affected by those things that go on around us. But it would be the opposite that we would affect those that are around us. That's what's being discussed here. We put it in that context and that understanding; it's a whole different thing. Turns me to John chapter seventeen. John chapter seventeen. Verses 14 through 15, here Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying for you and I and believers. This is what he says. I have given them my word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We should be unspotted from it. We are separate from it. Verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Jesus Christ there in the Garden of Gethsemane, part of what he specifically prays for you and I as believers, isn't that we'd be removed, but that we would be kept and preserved from the world around us. In other words, that it wouldn't affect you and I. That is his prayer for us. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, right after we had the discussion about giving our lives as a living sacrifice, it tells us this, and be not conformed to this world. Don't be like it. Don't look like it. Stand out. Be different. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, in other words, if you are a believer, if you are a son or daughter of God, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. I have two more references to close us out this morning. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Galatians 6, 14. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Now, the focus here isn't this morning that, that Paul is not glorying in any of his wisdom or his understanding or being from the right tribes or being schooled in the right schools. No, the focus this morning is that the world is crucified to him and he to the world. The world is dead to Paul, that there are more important things, that the things of eternity are the most important things, and that he is dead to the world. In other words, the world, it's not for him. And for you and I as believers, it's not going to be for us either. We are pilgrims in a strange land. We are not from here. This is not our home any longer. It really annoys me, the not of this world stickers, the N-O-T-W. I find them obnoxious. That's just a personal opinion. There's nothing wrong with having those on your car or on your, wherever you want to put those stickers. It is true we are not of this world our home our abode where we continue the reality is we just read in colossians chapter three is that our life is hid with god with christ in the heavenlies that's where it's at we set our affection on things that are above not things here on earth we seek first his righteousness one more matthew chapter six Matthew Chapter Six <clears throat> Verse Twenty Three It's First Thirty Three Matthew Six Thirty Three But seek ye first, or primarily, or above all else, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We're not looking for what we may receive or what we may get out of the deal. We're looking to honor and to exalt the Lord in all that we say and do, that we might make him known, that we might make him understandable to the best of our ability in the power of the Holy Spirit and with the word of God as our guide. And we're going to do so by honoring him in our obedience and that I trust in the Lord, and so therefore I will trust in the Lord in all things. And whether it's acceptable to the world around me or whether it's unacceptable to the world around me, I will abide in his truth. And I will found my life upon it, and I will, I will know it, and I will put it into practice. I'm going to walk in obedience. As James progresses, as we get on to the next chapter, we're going to find that challenge to you and I. That the way that we live is going to be a confirmation to the world around us of the faith and of the authenticity of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the transformative power of Him in our lives and in their lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning to open your word and to be, Lord, I pray to be challenged by it in a way that is healthy and not uh, not by coercion. Lord, I pray that nobody here would strive to operate in trust or in faith or to operate in uh, accordance with the word of God out of any legalistic purpose or out of any uh, thought or Desire to somehow appease me, but Lord, that we would want to do it in order that you would be known and you would be honored and glorified. Lord, it is our reasonable service, and we praise you. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to serve you. And God, I thank you that you haven't left us without guide, without hope, without a place to turn in those times. Lord, we have your spirit that leads us in truth and in righteousness and in justice. And God, your word being the foundation upon which you've conveyed to us your heart, your principles, your truth, and the gospel. May Lord, you by your grace help us to understand and to know it. We praise you, Lord, for the challenging book of James. And as we continue through this, Lord, would you transform our hearts and minds Would you, Lord, help us this week to take these uh, things that we've read this morning, as challenging as they may be, Lord, to be a doer of the word, Lord, that we might put that into practice. We thank you and we praise you for your grace. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray and that we give thanks. Amen.